Some of you know that uh, in November, there were 50 of us who took a little pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and um, many here were led by Pastor Bruzik and Kirby, and Linda and I had a group, and then a pastor out in California, Pastor Liddick, he led a tour. So I'm going to start with a commercial. Um, it's harder for, for Pastor Bruzik to do this than me, but please come to France with us. We have so much fun. It's great. Um, if you've never been on a tour, uh, this is Linda, and this will be our 10th leading a tour of, of people. And um, it's, it's a wonderful experience because of the community that you build along the way, the friends, the sharing of the trip. Um, we take care of just about everything for you, tips, hotels. You don't have to really lug your luggage except to put it in your car and drive it to the airport. After that, it's taken care of. And, and it's really it's a wonderful way to travel. It looks like a great trip. We, we start in the Riviera, Nice, Monte Carlo, drive up through France. Kirby said we're going to see two fabulous chateaus, castles. Uh, we'll see Mont Saint-Michel. We're going to go to Normandy and then end up in Paris. So we'd love to have you along. And that's my commercial for the day. Okay. <clears throat> now, to the, to the topic at hand. You have a handout. Um, in the catechumenate, one of the things that is taught are the disciplines of the faith and how it is that there are certain ways in which our lives can be ordered around some of these disciplines. And perhaps the most fundamental discipline of the faith is prayer. And uh, Pastor Bruzik asked me to talk about the Liturgy of the Hours. And um, what you're going to get is a seminary lecture reduced down to 45 minutes. I haven't done this in a long time. He asked me to be practical, which, as a seminary professor, is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> so I, I, I will try to take, take that to heart. But I am going to give you some history. I want you to know where this all comes from. I'm going to try to give you some kind of theology under the, 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 the way of prayer. And, and really what it is is about time. When I teach the liturgy, I have three major structures that I use as a way of kind of forming the, the, the presentation of why we worship the way we worship. The number one is, is right. You know, what it is that we do, the structure of the liturgy itself. And, um, you know, what you do matters and how you do it matters. But I also talk about kind of the theological underpinnings of why we do what we do in the rite. The, the second uh, kind of structure is space. Space does have an influence on the rite. So the space you're in is going to determine what you do. Big space, big rite. Small space, small rite. I mean, that's kind of a fundamental principle. But how you organize the rite is going to be, to a certain extent, determined by your space. The third structure is the structure of time. And time is really, in many ways, the most fundamental part of the Christian life. How do we order the time in which we live? Now, to start with, and this isn't on your handout. I added this this morning because I thought it would be a good way to start. Um, <clears throat> when I teach time, the first thing you teach really is the two fundamentals of time for the Christian church. And that is Sunday... The, the feast day of feasts, that's the original way in which Christians ordered their time. And if you can see up here, for the first 300 years, Sunday was the only way in which they ordered time in terms of the, the, the larger life of the church, the liturgical life of the church. 
And Sunday had the character of being an end-time day. I think you know the word eschatological, as it says there, pertaining to last things or the end time. But the, the order of the Christian life was from Sunday to Sunday, you know. And there wasn't a historical kind of remembrance in the church's life for 300 years. I know that's hard to believe, but it is true. The only thing they would really recognize historically was Easter. Easter was there at the beginning, the Pascha, because it was a really kind of a continuation from the Jewish way of, of, of thinking about time. But the next event that came in that they recognized was not Christmas. It was Epiphany. You know, somewhere in the beginning of January, January 6th became kind of the day they did that. And Christmas isn't until the second period, about 338, that you have the first recognition of Christmas on December 25th. I'd love to tell that story, but I won't. After Constantine, 312, that's the big date, when the Roman Empire became Christian and Constantine opened the coffers of the Roman Empire, to build churches, and especially in Jerusalem, they began to build these churches on all the holy sites. The historical character of the, of the time and the church here begins to develop there. That's when you, you begin to see Lent you know, as a prelude to Easter. Epiphany gets nailed down. Christmas gets nailed down. Advent comes in now as a preparation for Christmas. Pentecost becomes a regularized day, the ascension. I mean, all those things happen, whoa, whoa, at that time. And it, it is a total shift. And one of the, the, the things I reflect about with the students quite a bit is that relationship between Sunday and the church here. And that tension between recognizing the coming of the eschaton, the end times every Sunday, and yet kind of also then hammering it down in a concrete way, and recognizing the, the events of Jesus' life in this historical church year. And we've been living with that tension ever since. It's a good tension. It's not a bad tension. Sometimes we overemphasize one to the other, but um, I, I think really the restoration of Sunday as the, the eighth day, the end-time day, the feast day, and the ongoing feast day is, is really an important part of, of the restoration of time to the Christian church, especially after Vatican II. But I want to talk, as pastors, the liturgy of the hours, how you order your days, the days between Sundays. And here is a fundamental. This is from James White, who is a Presbyterian, taught at Notre Dame for years. He was one of the great liturgical scholars. He's retired now. Uh, He has a, a nice little book in which he gives you the basic structures of prayer, the basic structure of the liturgy of the hours. And hours simply mean that you pray at certain times. We'll see that in a minute. And, and this, you know, just kind of file this away. Instruction in the Word of God, and that means reading the Scriptures, maybe preaching on it, but Scriptures as kind of the foundation for, for prayer. Praising God, so psalms usually, or hymns, or some sort of acclamation of praise that comes in response to the Word of God, and then the prayer itself. Prayer always usually flowing out of the Word of God. Now that's it. The Liturgy of the Hours is built on those three components. Reading Scripture, praising God, through the Psalter primarily, and prayer. Now, the Synagogue Liturgy, you can see it over here on the left, is the foundation for all of this. And 
our matins, our vespers, our compline, the basic structure of the liturgy of, of the hours comes from the way in which they worshiped in the synagogue. And again, if we had lots of time, we could compare synagogue to temple. But synagogue is a small bore liturgy. It's not sacrificial. And you can see there, reading of the word. Midrash means preaching. Shema is like, like a creed. And then Sanctus is, the, is, the, uh, is one of the songs. Here you see the Psalms. There's the praise of God and prayer. I mean, there are the components. Word of God, praise of God, prayer. Simple as can be. And really, this, this was the fundamental way in which Jesus worshipped. Sabbath in and Sabbath out. He would go to synagogue. He would either read the word and preach or hear it and preach. He would be part of their praise and part of their prayer. So when you do the liturgy of the hours, you essentially worship in the, the way in which Jesus worshipped in the, in the vast majority of the, his time on this earth. I mean, he would, go, he would go to the temple once a year or more, but at least at the time of Passover. But the temple was an extraordinary time for him. His time was spent in the synagogue. His time was spent in essentially the structures that the liturgy of the hours has. Now, the first, very first kind of glimpse outside the New Testament of how we should order our day in prayer is from the Didache, which is a very ancient document. Again, I'd love to talk about the Didache. I think Paul had a hand in writing the Didache with Peter coming out of Antioch, Barnabas II. It's a, it's, a, it's a church order. And what a church order is, is how do you do church? How do you, you know, how do you catechize? How do you baptize? How do you celebrate the Lord's Supper? How do you pray? And the Didache has this very simple statement. It says, pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Now, we don't know what times they're suggesting, but most of us who kind of extrapolate back you're going to see that later on, the times that really are fundamental to the church's life of prayer are when Jesus is nailed to the tree at nine in the morning, at noon when he um, really, I mean, the darkness comes and, and he, he uh, b- begins the, the, the most intense part of his suffering, and then at three o'clock when he dies. And I, I think it's, it's very fair to say that perhaps they are suggesting these times. Certainly later on, this becomes a fundamental part of the way in which Christians ordered their time, around the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I I have a couple of quotes. They're not listed there on your paper. I probably should have put them. But I I think these are are helpful. They're a little erudite, but I think you can sort your way through it. Uh, This first one from Robert Taff. He is sort of the expert on the Liturgy of the Hours. He wrote a wonderful book, uh, called Liturgy of the Hours, East and West. And um, he's a, a liturgical scholar, again, out of Notre Dame, a, a Roman Catholic. But, but listen to what he says here. Christ is the center of Christian life, and it is this mystery and nothing else that the church renews in the liturgy so that we might be drawn into it. When we leave the assembly to return to our other tasks, we have only to assimilate what we have experienced and realize the mystery in our lives, in a word, to become other Christs. 
For the purpose of the liturgy is to generate in our lives what the church realizes for us in its public worship. Now, I I call this the liturgy of life, the liturgy outside the liturgy. What happens when you leave the assembly, like today, we leave the, the Eucharist, we go out into the world, and we take Christ in us. And when we take Christ in us, we become a liturgy. We become the liturgy of life. Um, He says, the spiritual life is just another word for a personal relationship with God. And the liturgy is nothing less than the common expression of the church's personal relationship with God. In such a liturgical spirituality, the church's public worship and the spiritual life of the individual are one. Now, that's critical. What happens on Sunday, what happens in the world after you leave the church in your life, in your life of prayer, are united. Your life of prayer flows out of the liturgy on Sunday, and your life of prayer then leads to the liturgy on Sunday. Now, I love this. All the supposed tension and spirituality between public and private, objective and subjective, liturgical and personal, is an illusion a false dichotomy. For inner public worship, it is precisely this work of spiritual formation that the church carries on. So this idea of this is my private worship, my private prayer, my public prayer, there is no distinction. It's, it, it really is the same. They flow out of the same womb. Now, I, I think that it's quite remarkable that and, and if you know anything about early church history, Hippolytus, who is the bishop of Rome, you know, 215, 220, he has a very specific kind of structure for his people. Here's a pastor speaking to his people. It's in a book called Apostolic Tradition, in which he tells them how to pray. And he tells them they are to pray the Lord's Prayer and other prayers. And he gives specific times. As we said before, the Passion, 9, noon, and 3. Death and resurrection is at sunrise and sunset. That's what you recognize. When you wake up, you pray, and when you go to bed, you pray, or when the sun sets. And then if you pray at those times, and then at bedtime, bedtime is always eschatological, you know? Remember, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die, I mean, I always wondered what kids thought when we prayed that with them. (laughs) I should die before I wake? That's eschatological, man. I mean, that's the end times right there, you know. Um, but but there's, a, there's a deeply theological character to our prayer. Now, bear with me. I, I think it's worth your time. I'm going to read you Hippolytus here. I want you to hear him. He's a pastor talking to his people. Here's my practical moment, okay? Um, I, I, through the words of Hippolytus. Can you see that? If you are at home, pray at the third hour and bless God. But if you are somewhere else at the moment, pray to God in your heart. Now, why is that? Persecution. this This is a time of persecution, and your public prayer may put you in jeopardy. That's practical. Okay, For at that hour, Christ was nailed to the tree. For this reason, also in the Old Testament... The law prescribed that the showbread should be offered continually as a type of the body and blood of Christ, and the slaughter of the lamb without reason is this type of the perfect lamb. For Christ is the shepherd and also the bread which came down from heaven. Now, you may not know this, but at 9 in the morning, 
and three in the afternoon were the atonement sacrifices in the holy place in, in the temple. Every day. Every day. Atonement sacrifices. Nine in the morning, three in the afternoon. And if I had a picture of the temple here, I could show you that in the court of women, everybody would gather for prayer. So they would pray during these times. You know, you know the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. That's at one of the atonement sacrifice moments. And the Pharisee is standing right there in the head of everybody, and he's looking around and saying, thank God I'm not like the rest of these people. I tithe, I do all these things. And the publican, I love this in Luke, it's in Luke only, he's in the corner, he's prostrate, and here's what he says. You know, we always translate it, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But you know what it really means. It's God, make atonement for me, a sinner, because the atonement sacrifices are taking place. Now, Hippolytus is referencing this here. He knows that. He says, pray likewise at the time of the sixth hour. For when Christ was nailed to the wood of the cross, the day was divided and darkness fell. And so, at that hour, let them pray a powerful prayer, imitating the voice of him who prayed, and make all creation dark for the unbelieving Jews. Now, that was perhaps the most critical hour among Christians, to pray at noon. Um, noon was, in many ways, kind of, if you're going to pray only once a day, or if you're going to mark the day, that's the one to do. At the ninth hour, let them pray also a great prayer and great blessing to know the way in which the soul of the righteous blesses God who does not lie, who remembered his saints and sent his word to give them light. For at that hour, Christ was pierced in his side and poured out water and blood, giving light to the rest of the time of the day. He brought it to evening. Then in the beginning to sleep and making the beginning of another day, he fulfilled the type of the resurrection. Now there it is, that at the rising of the sun and at its setting, what do you remember? You remember the resurrection. So you begin your day with the resurrection and you end it with the resurrection. And the sun is that reminder. So resurrection to begin the day and end it and the death of Jesus to mark the three hours, nine, twelve, and three. And likewise, he goes on um, about cock crow and pray. For at that hour as the cock crew, the children of Israel denied Christ, whom he knew whom, whom we know by faith, our eyes looking towards the day in the hope of eternal light at the resurrection of the dead. So there's the resurrection again. And if you act so, all you faithful, and remember these things and teach them in your turn and encourage the catechumens, you will not be able to be tempted or to perish since you have Christ always in memory. Now there is your Christ is always in memory. And it's, it's uh, I think, really a, a, a remarkable pastoral moment for Hippolytus to write this to his folks in the year 220. It was significant enough, Hippolytus, that in the 4th century, so this is post-Constantine, and probably starting in Jerusalem, but other places as well, there is the development of what the church calls the cathedral office. And the cathedral office was where the, the private prayer of the saints before the time of Constantine, so in this period, now is taken into the church itself. So people are doing it privately, 
but it's also now done by the bishop and the pastors in the cathedrals. Because Christianity is not only a legal religion, it's the religion of the empire. Um, it is St. Benedict in the 6th century who really kind of institutionalizes this in the Benedictine hours. And some of you know this. Now, I inserted there instruction, the word of God, praise of God, and common prayer, because all of these hours have this in common. But these are the Benedictine hours. These are the, the hours that the monks and the nuns would have followed. And, and, you know, for us, this is sort of significant because, you know, Luther was an Augustinian, and he prayed the Benedictine hours. I mean, I'm not a Luther scholar, but one of the things that is, I think, very impressive about how Luther becomes what Luther becomes is that he did pray these. And in praying these, he prayed the Psalter continually. And in some cases, they prayed the entire Psalter in a week. So the Psalter, the Psalms, were, were kind of embedded in his being from being a monk, from being an Augustinian, and praying these hours. Now, these are, they're a little different from ours. You can see that we've kind of shaped them a little differently. Vespers, the end of the working day, Compline at bedtime, those are pretty close to ours. Nocturne, vigils, matins in the middle of the night. Now, we don't, that's, that's not the case anymore. That's our morning liturgy. Lauds at daybreak, prime, shortly thereafter. And then here's the death of Jesus, terst, sext, and nun. Um, nine, noon, and three. Now, that's a rigorous day of prayer. That's, that's, that's the way the monks prayed. And, um, and you can see that, that they, have, they have taken the Hippolytus hours and they've expanded them. And, and the ones th- that really kind of stand out are the ones that are in the middle of the night, that they would get up and pray in the middle of the night. But I think waking and sleeping uh, or waking and the end of the day and then the, the hours during the, the, the day that marked the passion of Jesus those are still in play for many, many Christians. And in many ways, that is, that is what I would recommend to you. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what you might do at those hours in a minute. Um, very briefly here, Luther um, made quite a remarkable sort of recommendation to Lutherans on how they might incorporate this into their lives. And, and Luther essentially reduced it down to three, at least within the, the practice of the church. And I think that he would have recommended this also to his, to his people in their private prayers. He reduced it to Matins, Vespers, and Compline. Now, those are the ones that are in our hymnals. If you know our hymnals, generally speaking, we have those as the, the ones that are pointed for, for chanting. They're the ones that we use in our, in our liturgies. Um, these are the, the kind of the meat and potatoes of our seminary life. Um, we do matins. We do vespers. I mean, this afternoon we're doing a choral vespers. We do matins or morning prayer or something, variation of it, in the morning at every chapel unless we're having the Lord's Supper. And Compline, of course, is the, the final kind of evening service. Beautiful service. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And here are the basic components of the Luther, you know, office. You know, the, the liturgy of the hours according to Luther. And you can see that, that he is really, in a sense, following the tradition here. 
Uh, scripture, preaching, psalms, hymns, Lord's Prayer, prayers, blessing. Um, he definitely makes it a little more liturgical out of his own experience as an Augustinian. The thing that Luther adds that is really significant, and I shouldn't say add because you can, can find this in, the, in the, the, the Catholic rites before Luther, but he emphasized preaching. And preaching is something that really is what distinguishes the Lutheran liturgy of the hours from others. Um, at, the, at the seminary, when I was dean of chapel, I made sure whenever we had a liturgy of the hours, we always had preaching. Now, we do have 7.30 services early in the morning, and we have services 4 in the afternoon. We have our chapel, big chapel service at 10. At 7.30 and 4, we don't have preaching, but at the 10 o'clock, we do. And um, I, I think that's a, a very significant sort of, you know, addition that is distinctly Lutheran, how preaching is always a part of the, the church's life. And, you know, a lot of people wonder, how could Luther write as much as he did in all those sermons? Well, he preached every day. He preached every day at Matins and Vespers, you know? I mean, and I'm not sure he wrote them all out, but he certainly had students who were recording them, and a lot of those things were transcribed, and that's why he was as prolific as he was. And he was always thinking and preaching and studying and praying, on the right there is Matins, the Matins as we have it uh, in our liturgies, LSB. Um, you, can, you know it probably fairly well. Um, you can see that we do have an opening, a canticle, a venite, which is a psalm, hymn that follows the, the, the way of the tradition. We start with praise, which is not you know, uncommon among Christians. Um, Psalmody, you can do as many psalms as you want. That's the, the beauty of the Psalter, is, um, is you can add as many as you feel needs to be, but preaching there in connection with the Word. We do have a canticle now, the Te Deum or the Benedictus in Matins. I, I didn't put Vespers, but in Vespers it's the, it's the um, Magnificat. Kyrie as the lead into prayer. Always the Lord's Prayer, always prayers, usually in the form of colics and a blessing. Um, I'll leave it time for questions, but I want to cite one more little passage here from a Lutheran. Some of you may know him, Philip Fadeker. He wrote a commentary on the Lutheran Book of Worship. And I, I think you can see, whoops, in this quotation, the deep theology of the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, he says this, The mystery of God in Christ is the center of the church. Now that sounds a lot like what Robert Taft said, the Catholic. By celebrating the liturgy of the hours at certain times of the day, which recall, now listen to this, creation and recreation, the church, gathered together in the Holy Spirit, hears the life-giving word of God, and in response to it, voices the praise of creation, joins the songs of heaven, shares in Christ's perpetual intercession for the world. Now, I don't know if there's a more beautiful statement than that. That when we gather for prayer or pray alone, we're not praying alone. We're praying with all of creation. We're praying with all the church. 
We're praying with all the saints, and our intercessions by the Spirit are joining Christ's intercessions, his perpetual ones, for the world. This cycle of prayer and praise transforms our experience of time, of time, deepening our understanding of how day and night can proclaim and celebrate the Paschal Mystery. Paschal Mystery being what we're going to celebrate in a week during Holy Week, the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Thus, the daily liturgy of the hours supplements and contrasts with the centrality of Sunday Eucharist in the life of the Church, edifying the one holy people of God until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what do you do when you pray? Um, I have spent my life looking for the best sources for prayer. And there are many. You can use the hymnal to start. Just use the, 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 the liturgies in the hymnal for the, for the hours. They're almost there, the, the, those wonderful little prayer services. Or use matins and vespers. Um, the treasury of daily prayer that the Synod has put out. Wonderful resource. It's huge, you know. You've got to have a, a wagon to carry it around. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a wonderful prayer. And I, I'm, a, I'm a bit biased. The prayers in there, I was responsible for. I, all the prayers I contributed, I took a, many of them from the life of the church. And I wrote a number of them, a couple hundred of them that, that were added that we didn't have prayers for. So I, I have, you know, so, somewhat of a vested interest. Although I don't use that anymore as I used to. I, you know, it's funny how you move on. There's that wonderful four volumes that the, the um, ALPB, what does that stand for? The American Lutheran Publicity Bureau. That, that was wonderful. I used that for years and years and years. And Treasury of Daily Prayer is, in a sense, founded on that. Um, I'm using one now that I've discovered recently called Magnificat, which I just love. It's Roman Catholic, but it, they send you a little book every every month, and I just, I find it to be very, very satisfying in every way. And I'm sure at some point I'll move on to something else. But that is how I, I at least honor the, they, they have prayer for the morning, prayer for the evening, and then prayer for, they call it prayer for Mass, which is really wonderful. The, the lessons of the day are included there. Lots of Psalter, some readings from the Church Fathers, uh, very much like Treasury of Daily Prayer. Um, I, I firmly believe in having a book of prayer to use. Um, I, I think that the prayers of the church, that we can pray together, I mean, they, they pray better than I can pray. And I think there's something very much to that. However, I think saying our own prayers is important. And I, I believe very strongly, and I did this as a pastor in my congregation in Connecticut, and I've continued it since. Um, I would go into church and pray for everybody in the congregation. And I tried to do it all in a week. I had a small congregation, so I could do it. <laughs> but um, I, I have, I've always maintained a list of, of people I pray for or for things I pray for. Uh, I mean, I always pray for the church. Um, I pray for our seminary. Um, I, I pray for deaconesses because I was director of deaconess studies. Obviously, I pray for my family. I pray for my extended family. I always pray for the president. And I pray that his heart will be turned to open up to the life of the unborn. I pray that every day. I pray for our governor. 
Um, and then I pray for those who are, you know, in our particular circumstances of sickness or coming before us at this moment. Um, I use a prayer chaplet that I find to be helpful. Um, I, I, those of you who are with me in the retreat, this is what I used on the Camino during the pilgrimage. It's not a rosary. It's a prayer chaplet. <clears throat> and I have a bead for every concern that I have. And this is what helps order my prayer. So as I pray, I pray on every bead. And they're always changing. I sometimes forget. Sometimes lose one. Um, but, I mean, it, it helps me. I find this to be, I'm a tactile person. I like having something in my hand when I pray. One thing I discovered a long time ago, when, you, when I prayed for all the folks in Middletown, Connecticut, you don't have to pray with words, okay? You can just say the name. And you know what they need, and the Lord knows what they need, and the Spirit prays through you. I find that to be extremely helpful, that just, just naming the name is all I need to do. And sometimes when you're in a hurry, that's all you can do, you know? Now, I, I, I don't want to say I do this every day. I fail in this. I have days where, you know, I, I put it off. And I'll tell you this, if I don't do it first thing in the morning, I don't do it. I don't do it. I'm not a big prayer at night. I usually fall asleep before I get through my prayers. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I found that in my life. So I'm a morning guy. And I have a number of other books I read. I'm always reading devotional things. I'm always looking for things. But I, I, I tend to do all my prayers in the morning. I'm kind of a type A person, you know, get it out of the way, you know. That's really awful, but that's just the way I am. Um, I do try and recognize the 9, 12, and 3. And either say the Lord's Prayer or at least acknowledge that in some way. Um, it's not always possible to do, but I have found that to be very, very helpful. Now, that's my practical part, okay? That is a discipline, and it, it's a discipline like anything, you know, like exercise, like, you know, eating right, that you're not going to be perfect. It's okay. I used to, if I didn't do my prayers, like, for a couple of days, I used to go back and try and catch up. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm serious, because what happens is, you try to catch up, and you get worn out, and you never get back. Just let it go. It's okay. God forgives you. It's all right. Just start again. Keep going. You know? um, I still have that impulse, and I sometimes go back and read at least the, kind of the meditations that I, I really find to be very helpful. But, um, but I, just, just start that day and move forward. You know? We get a lot of students who really beat themselves up over this and they come in, you know, because they're trying to be pious. And I say, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's okay. Just do the best you can. And, uh, and, 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 and try to use the rhythm of the day, the rhythm of Jesus' death, you know, sunrise, sunset. Just, you know, just use, use what's natural there as the way in which you order your life in prayer. It's the discipline of prayer has a huge history, and I think you can see the theological underpinnings. I love that, the, the creation and recreation. I mean, that, that's playing my song. Questions? Yes, Peter. 
Yeah, that's right. It's a good point. You know, <laughs> the church has got your back. You know, someone once asked me when I was dean of the chapel, you know, why do you pray at 7.30? And sometimes there's hardly anyone there. Why do you keep doing it? You know, and why do you do it at 4 o'clock? Sometimes no one's there. And we sometimes do it twice a week in the evening. And I said, I want the, the church to know that the seminary prays. And it prays every day. And we, we pray for the church. We pray for every district. We pray for every, every district president. Um, we, we pray. We're a, a community of prayer. And I always tell students, try to splice into that life as often as you can. But that's a wonderful comment, Peter. I've got to remember that. Other comments, questions? Maybe Pastor wants to jump in. Yes, sir. Oh boy, that's a great question, and um, we're sort of making it up out of whole cloth. And what I mean by that is this: the most significant reference to the synagogue liturgy in the first century is Luke chapter four, the Sermon in Nazareth. That's it. That's it. The next closest synagogue liturgy we have, actually, is the synagogue liturgy of Rabbi Ben Gaion in the 6th or 7th century after Christ. One of the things that Christian scholars like, um, what's his name, the Lutheran, Frank Sen, suggests in reconstructing the uh, the, uh, synagogue liturgy is to look at the prayer services of Christians. And he actually extrapolates back from Christian praying to sort of sort out how it is that the Jews prayed because the Christians followed the Jewish prayer. But the synagogue sources are really very sparse. I do think that this is about as accurate as we can get. We know they read the Word of God. We know they preached. We know they prayed. And we know that they had Psalter. Okay? The way in which they did it, we're not sure. Um, we don't know that they did this between the lessons. That, Frank Sen says we don't have no evidence for that until the 6th or 7th century. We believe that's true because that's what Christians did, and they got it from the Jews. And I think that's fair. But that's a great question, and that's the true of a lot of early liturgy. Yes, sir? You mentioned Hippolytus. Hippolytus. Or, or if you'd like to, Hippolytus, as those who, of the medical profession call him. Um, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah, Hippo's in North Africa. Yeah. Augustine is about 200 years, well, not quite, 200 years later. So, but but August, Augustine was, was certainly, I mean, whether he realized it or not, influenced by Hippolytus. Hippolytus influenced just about everybody. And, you know, that's a great other story. We didn't have his apostolic tradition until the 19th century. We didn't have a copy of it. They found it in a British, you know, library. But we knew it existed because everybody cited it and we had sections of it from other people. So they were able to piece it together. But then they, got a, they found a copy and there it was. Boom. You know, it was kind of nice. It's one of the, the values of modern research. We actually have come across texts that we knew existed but didn't have until they were discovered. Oh, come on. There have got to be more questions. 
we grew up with, now I lay me down to sleep, sleep. my mom wouldn't put the die part in there. She wouldn't. No, no she so wouldn't. Ours was, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. When in the morning light I wake. Oh, that's nice. Path of love to take. That's very nice. So it was that's it very was nice. <laughs> that's very nice. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I, does anyone know where that Now I Lay Me comes from? It's, it's you know, it's, it's like the liturgy. It's anonymous. And that's its beauty. Um, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you in this holy season of Lent in repentance and faith pondering the passion of your Son, his suffering at the ninth hour when he died. We ponder our final days of journeying to Jerusalem and to the cross and empty tomb. And we ask that as we go forward, we could pray. And we could pray in a way in which we can focus our eyes on his death and resurrection. And so go with us in these days ahead. We ask that you accompany us by your Spirit. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.